What a blessing it is to be uh, together on this Lord's Day, to have this opportunity to worship our Father in heaven, to commune with our Savior, and excited now to have the opportunity to open the Bible and study the subject of godly women. And I recognize that this subject is somewhat cliche considering what day it is, but I've wanted to cover this topic for a while now. When I got this slot, I decided that this was as good of a time as any. And obviously, I recognize I have no experience as a godly woman. Now, I know many godly women um, have made a lot of observations concerning godly women, but obviously this illustrates that we don't always have to have experience with something to find the truth and teach the truth regarding it. Different sins or things doesn't mean we go out and experience those things to be able to teach on them. Now, obviously, it's nice sometimes with subjects to have experience to teach on, Uh, But ultimately, we can always go to the Word of God, our standard, written and revealed by the one who designed us and created us and understands us better than we understand ourselves. And we can find and obtain the truth regarding any subject there is. And that's exactly what I intend to do this morning as Callum prayed to present, Thus saith the Lord. And I believe that there is admonition for every single person here this morning. Obviously, if you're a woman... Whether you're young or old or married or unmarried, there's admonition for you. And I also want to say that uh, we're going to talk about some things at times that are specific to wives or specific to mothers. Now, recognize not every woman is going to be a wife or mother and wanting to be sensitive to that. um, You don't have to be a wife or mother to have an influence, to have an impact in the kingdom, uh, to be a godly woman. And some of these characteristics and qualities we'll talk about. Many women in the Bible were unable to have children. And so we want to be sensitive to that and let you know that you are valuable, special, that you have an impact. Obviously, even if you're a male this morning, if you're a young male and you're desiring to be married one day, the kind of woman that you should pursue to be your wife and maybe eventually the mother of your children. If you're married, the kind of wife that woman that you want to encourage and support your wife to be. The kind of daughter you want to train kind of woman you want your daughter to be and some of these characteristics and qualities are universal they apply to women and men uh, concerning being a godly person considering concerning being a christian i also want to say in response to that that some of these qualities again are specific to women and encourage the the guys please do not uh, pursue some of these qualities and characteristics god designed men and women to be different different roles different responsibilities And one of the problems in society today is that we try to make men women and women men, and we do not want to do that this morning. But it's interesting, you know, people will say some of the things you're going to talk about this morning aren't politically correct. We don't really care about that. We're trying to be biblically correct. But they'll say that's backward or that's old fashioned or that's sexist or that's discriminatory. But, you know, it's interesting, the Bible and Christianity has elevated women like no other religion, like no other society, and it's not even close. When you look at human history up till recently, even in many places today, how women were viewed often as second rate citizens with no rights, sometimes as property of the husband. And we see Paul writes in Galatians three that there's neither male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. There's equality. Proverbs 31. 
Verse 10, who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies. That's how the Bible views women. That's the value the Bible provides women. Peter said something similar in the New Testament when talking about women. We'll look at this passage a little more later about their meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. And I believe all the beauties and wonders of the world pale in comparison to a godly, virtuous woman clothed in humility. There's nothing more beautiful. There's nothing more attractive. There is nothing more valuable in the world. Men, families, congregations, nations prosper under the influence of godly women. How often when you look in the book of Kings and Chronicles and it talks about these kings and many of them were wicked and evil and some of them were good kings. But often you'll see, you know, who's listed right by the king. The name of his mother. Because as the saying goes, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Napoleon once said, let France have great mothers and France will have great sons. Teddy Roosevelt said, the mother is the one supreme asset of the national life. She is more important by far than the successful statesman or businessman or artist or scientist. Abraham Lincoln said, no man is poor who has a godly, godly mother. And he also said, all that I am and all that I hope to be, I owe to my angel mother. Another common saying, a pound of mother is worth more than... Or an ounce of mother is worth more than a pound of preacher. I'll echo that this morning as I stand up here. And so what a tragedy then when women and wives and mothers are not godly and not virtuous. In Proverbs 31, we can't help but go there, right? Anytime we talk about godly, virtuous women, we always go to Proverbs 31 because it's a thorough, comprehensive list of the qualities and characteristics of a virtuous, godly woman. And our study this morning will be no exception to that as we go frequently to, to Proverbs chapter 31. But if, as you look in the beginning of that chapter, this mother is giving advice to her son, a king. Avoid fornication, avoid alcohol, defend the defenseless. But you know what? She spends the majority of her speech, of her advice, admonishing him to pursue and seek a godly, virtuous wife. And so she provides, we have characteristics and qualities of a of a virtuous, godly woman in Proverbs chapter 31. But our sermon this morning actually is going to be taken from another passage where Paul gives us another very comprehensive list of the qualities and characteristics of godly women in Titus chapter 2. And in fact, we're going to go line by line through this passage this morning. It'll be easy to remember the points that we made and covered this morning because it's from these three verses in Titus chapter 2. Where Paul writes, the aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. And I think it's interesting, the list starts at the top with holiness, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness. Obviously, if you're going to be a virtuous, godly woman, you're going to be a holy woman. You're going to be sanctified, which means set apart. You're going to be consecrated to the Lord. You're going to be dedicated to the Lord. That term holy means otherness. You're going to be transcendent. You're going to be different. You're going to be a peculiar people. When you study that word as it was used in ancient times, when they talked about a garment or a piece of clothing, that was a cut above the rest. That's the concept. She is a cut 
above the rest. And in contrast to that, we read frequently in the book of Proverbs warnings about a wicked woman, an unholy woman, and how that she is a threat to the home and then extending and radiating out from there a threat to the church, a threat to the kingdom, a threat to society at large. You know, to a great extent, man's eternal destiny is tied to his wife. It takes an awfully strong man to get to heaven with a wicked wife at his side. She'll be a millstone about his neck. Women often have a restraining influence on men, and that's a great blessing. You know, we talk about boys being boys, and I'm not excusing that. I'm not saying that's okay. Often take an unnecessary risk, right? How often do we use the phrase, hey, watch this? And it usually does not turn out good, does it? And thankfully, we have women that say, no, we're not going to watch that because we're not going to do that. And we're not going to say that. And you need to think this through. And you need to use your manners. How often does that come out of the mouths of mothers? There's a dignity and a respectability that women bring to the table. And I want to tell you, when women become one of the boys, we're in trouble. Not false accusers. Proverbs 31, 26. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and in her tongue is the law of kindness. Qualifications of of wives. We see qualifications of elders and deacons that men should aspire to, but women aspire to these qualifications, including not slanderers. Bible has a lot to say about gossip. And I'm going to say that if there's such a thing as evil speaking that the Bible talks about, there's such a thing as evil listening. And if we want to stop gossip, then we need to stop it not only with our mouth, we need to stop it with our ears. Gossipers would not be able to gossip without an audience. When we talk about not slandering, that includes not slandering your husband. I've never understood why some women seem to enjoy slandering their husband because he reflects upon you. Two have become one. You are a team. Your failures are shared. Your successes are shared and you chose them. So you're slandering yourself. You gain nothing by destroying his reputation and running him down. In fact, in Proverbs 31, she's supporting part of why he has this good reputation And he sits at the gate of the city in this place of prominence. And she's happy about that. She's supportive of that. She's a part of the reason for that. Not given to much wine. We mentioned earlier, if you read earlier in this chapter, one of the pieces of advice given to him was to avoid alcohol. And when we see the warnings throughout the Bible about alcohol, when we see the effects that it has often on individuals, on lives, and on homes. And it would be very sound advice for a mother or grandmother to warn her child or grandchild about the dangers of alcohol. You know, Abraham Lincoln was known for his abstinence. There's a story one time where he was offered a drink by a colonel in the army. And he told this colonel, my mom made me promise on her deathbed when I was a young boy not to drink. And I've kept that promise till today. Would you have me break it? The colonel said, absolutely not. He said, I wish I had such a mother that had made me make such a promise and I'd kept it to this day. What a great blessing to model uh, sobriety and to model these kind of characteristics to our children and grandchildren. Continuing on, she is to be a teacher of good things that they may teach the young women to be sober. So if she's to teach the younger women... That means that it has to be acquired. It means it doesn't always happen automatically or naturally, that it's something we have to work at. It's something we have to learn. And God's plan is not for younger women to turn to the Internet or television for bad representations of what it means to be a woman. 
But God's plan is for younger women to turn to the older women. And we might say more experienced women, to put it not more uh, nicely, on what it means to be a godly woman. And so there's a challenge for you women then to live such a life that's worthy of imitation and to allow younger women close enough to see exactly what that looks like. And while we're on the subject of teaching, talked about getting into some things that are controversial, recognizing that there's a certain sense, a very specific and narrow sense in which a woman is not to teach. And that's very controversial today. I don't know why, because the Bible couldn't be clear. Paul said, I suffer not a woman to teach. Tying it back to Adam and Eve and to the beginning, a parallel passage. Let your women keep silence in the churches or in the assemblies, for it's not permitted for them to speak or to teach. He says it's shameful for them to do so. That's very strong language. Inside the assembly, outside, she can teach. Inside, she's not to teach. That's the plan of God. Some... But he says, well, I believe I should be given a venue to display my talent, my knowledge. And we're not saying that women aren't as talented or more talented or have as much knowledge as many men. That's not the point. But why do we think that we need 50 or 100 or 200 people present for us to teach people? Why do we think we need a stage to teach people? Jesus taught publicly, but he taught very often privately. I want to tell you, I have a lot more opportunities to teach people privately than I do publicly. I'm not saying public teaching is not important. I believe in it. I teach here maybe five to ten hours a year, maybe. I teach some other places and travel and teach other places. I enjoy doing that. But I want to tell you, I have a lot more opportunities to teach people privately. Family, friends, neighbors, coworkers. I've seen people obey the gospel, respond, repent. Often when the study is tailored specifically to them one-on-one. Let's not discount the influence and the impact of private teaching. Somebody says, I need a venue. God's given you a venue, and it's a beautiful venue, starting in your home, in the homes of other people, and anywhere we might be besides this one, two, or three hours out of 167 that were here. And you can teach. We don't read of women apostles or elders or deacons or evangelists or preachers. That's not God's will. But it's my observation and it's my conviction that there is no one more critical and influential in the kingdom of God than Christian women and Christian wives and Christian mothers. We have an example of this in 2 Timothy 1, 5, as Paul writes to the young man, Timothy. And he says, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also... Chapter 3, verse 15, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise into salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Where did Timothy get this faith, this unfeigned faith? Where did he get this knowledge that made him wise into salvation? How did he become this great example to believers? Who was so influential in his life? His mother and his grandmother. You might have noticed the background picture here. can't see very well, but... Centered here, that's my grandmother. And around her, her granddaughters and granddaughters-in-law. And think about the generations and the lives that are impacted over time that come from you. And I want to tell you that I can't think of many people or hardly anybody that's been any more influential in my life than my grandmother. And why I stand before you and the impact on my character and my life and how my grandparents and my grandmother has been such a steady influence in my life. Since as far as back as I have memory, their home always been the same. I have sentimental attachment. One of my favorite places in the world is their home. The impact she's had on my faith and memories of going to church with her and being taught the Bible and character and being disciplined by her. 
And I can't think of many people in my life that I have any more respect or love or admiration for than my grandmother. And let's not discount the impact, the influence that you can have and the way that you can teach others. A poem here about a mother's influence. I took a piece of plastic clay and idly fashioned it one day. And as my fingers pressed it still, it moved and yielded at my will. I came again when days were past, the form I gave it still it bore. And as my fingers pressed it still, I could change that form no more. I took a piece of living clay and gently formed it day by day and molded with my power and art a young child's soft and yielding heart. I came again when days were gone. It was a man I looked upon. He still that early impress bore and I could change it nevermore. She used to love her husband and love her children. Genesis 2.18, going back to the creation of woman and the creation of marriage and the creation of children and the family unit. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a help meet for him. You were created and designed by God to be the answer, to be the solution, to be the perfect companion and help meet for your husband. And I want to tell you one of the greatest gifts you can give to your children is to love and respect their father and be committed to their father. And we see the effects on homes, on the church, on society, on children when that is not the case. She used to love her children. It seems like that goes without saying. There's nothing more powerful than a mother's love. And that seems natural, not always. And we can put our children in the dumpster, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually. We have some women that act like children aren't a blessing from the Lord. They're a burden. Never wanting to be home, always out and about. And I'm not saying we don't do some of that to a certain level, but never wants to be around the children. Always pawning them off on other people. We read in Proverbs 31, she senses that her gain is good. That's good. Why does she do what she does? She gets up early, she goes to bed late, she works, she works, she works, she gives, she gives, she sacrifices. Why? Not for self-fulfillment, not for self-indulgent, not to climb the corporate ladder, because she loves her family. That's what moves her. That's what drives her. She loves her family. I saw something the other day about how you know when motherhood has set in. I wanted to share it. I think many of you, you women can relate to this because it's true. But some of the characteristics, I won't read all of them, but it says, you know, a mother had set in when you hide in the bathroom to be alone. Or in the case of my wife, when you hide in the pantry or the laundry room to eat a snack. She does that quite commonly. When you read that the average five-year-old asks 492 questions a day and you're proud because your child's above average. And that's exactly where we're at right now. My wife spends all day, every day with these little creatures that are at a point in human development, especially my oldest, where he asks every question there is and every question that's not. <laughs> when you hire a sitter, because you can't remember the last time you and your husband had time alone on a date and you spend half the evening checking on your children. Or maybe when you say or you feel every, almost every day, I can't do this or I'm not good at this, but you wouldn't trade it for the world because you love every minute. You love your husband and... And you love your children. She used to be discreet. Talk about the importance of discretion, discipline, and good judgment. Proverbs talks about a woman that's beautiful without discretion, not pretty. All these characteristics and qualities and virtues, if you don't have discretion, though, none of them matter. We see in Proverbs 31, she's discreet. She has discipline. 
We need that sexually and emotionally and physically and with our temper and with finances and budget. One of the things, maybe I'm reading too much into this and I'm biased towards this. She seems thrifty to me. And if you know me, that's something I find very attractive. She's thrifty. I like that. And I'm fortunate Kelsey and I are compatible in that way. And I'm probably a little more extreme than she is, but she's she's thrifty. I don't have to go to work wondering, you know, confiscating the credit card or worried about buying another pair of shoes that's going to put us further into debt. It says that he'll have no lack of gain. That means that he doesn't have to be a slave to earn back what she's lost. She safely trusts or he safely trusts in her. That means his confidence, his trust is not misplaced. She hasn't given him a reason to not trust her. She's dependable. She's faithful. I'd say that 90% or at least, or maybe more, of the purchases from our bank accounts that are made in our home are made by my wife. And I have complete and total confidence. That doesn't mean she doesn't ever buy something for herself. She does. And I'll come home every once in a while. She'll buy, have bought another pair of shoes or clothes or something for herself. But she's gotten very good at how to work me. She'll, it's like an infomercial. I'll get home and she'll say, but it was a $100 value and I got it for $9.99, Right? But wait, there's more. She knows how to spin it. She always is getting a bargain, always getting a deal. And she knows that makes it more palatable. But she has discretion. You know, I read of a contrast to this woman of a couple who had a great marriage with one flaw. He was quick on the deposit, but she was quicker on the draw. Can he trust you with the credit card? Do you have discretion? She's chased. She's modest. First Timothy 2, 9 and 10. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Godly women are modest. And there's a contrast. And if there's not a contrast, I need to stop and ask, am I, which woman am I? She's modest. And I want to tell you, there's a sense of modesty that's natural, maybe in a woman or that should be there, that's been stripped away by our culture. We need to bring it back. We need to restore it. Again, I'm going to, I'm going to tread lightly here. But I watched a video the other day, the presentation by a young woman who had started a business based on modest swimwear, seeing a need for that. She gave a presentation that was very, very good. She made some really good points that we need to think about. But she talked about the history of the bikini. And she talked about how it got that name because the French designer that designed it named it after the Bikini Atoll Island where atomic bomb testing had occurred. He said it's going to be like an atom bomb going off. And boy, was he right. And there was a backlash. And he said a real one should be able to fit through a wedding ring. And she went on to present some information concerning research that was done at Princeton University where they studied brain activity in men as they were shown pictures of scantily clad women versus modest women. And what that research showed, surprise, surprise, was that the utility part of a man's brain, like hammer, tools, they looked at women in a first-person action verb sense. I touch, I push. But when shown pictures of modestly dressed women, Third-person action verb, she touches, she pushes. You know what they realized? You know what National Geographic even said? It's as if they see these immodest women as objects and not real humans. In fact, there was a part of the brain in some of the men 
that's associated with thinking about how somebody else feels, where you think of them as a person and have compassion, completely shut down. And they were shocked by that. That hardly ever happens. So what happened? I blame it on the 60s. Right? Liberation movements. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Sexual revolution, right? And we're liberated and we're freeing. You know what you're empowering women to do? You're empowering yourself to shut down the part of a man's brain that looks at you as a human instead of an object. That's not the kind of power God wants you to have. I'm going to tell you, modesty, that's what's empowering. And it's not just about the midriff and the chest and all those things that we commonly think about, about being modest and covering things up and men being visual. I'm not saying men don't have their job in controlling themselves and their minds. We're not talking about that this morning. Looking upon a woman, there's two people sometimes involved in that. Well, we need to think also about the word too, as in too short or too tight or too transparent. They adore themselves with respectable apparel. Proverbs 31, strength and honor are her clothing. You know, we get to this part of this passage and you read these characteristics and pretty soon you start thinking, man, she had to have been rough. She's not sleeping. She's working herself to death. She's probably stressed out of her mind. She's probably got dirty hands. She probably smells bad. Not so. So she wears fine linen, purple, elegant, dignity. She's able to present her beauty to her husband in an effective way at home. She wasn't frumpy. And I think I finally know what that word means. I think I just used it correctly. My wife has talked for a long time about being frumpy or feeling frumpy or things being frumpy. I don't think that modesty necessarily means you have to be frumpy or resigned to that. She was dignified. She was respectable. And she was also modest. And she shared that not only publicly, but privately. Counselors will sometimes talk about how they've shown, and it sounds very shallow for men, being the visual creatures that we are, that if women were diligent, not only when they went out publicly, but when they were at home on some things and appearances, that sometimes the climate of the marriage can be enhanced or that can change the romance of things that we be diligent not just when we go out in public but also when we're at home sometimes that we're not sloppy and that goes for the fellows as well as I mean women aren't visual either we need to maybe not be sloppy sometimes at home but obviously that's not the most important thing we are even told that going back to first peter three it's not about the outward appearance it's about ultimately the hidden man of the heart adorning ourselves with the meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of god of great price looks are going to fade Death is going to come, and it'll be far more important for her to have been a Christian woman or a Christian wife or a Christian mother than any other thing she could have chosen to be. Inner beauty, that's far more important than hairstyles or jewelry or a closet full of expensive clothes. Talks about braided hair. When, you went, when I went and studied some of the practices back then, what happened is you'd have women that had these hair pieces, basically of figurines or images or fine, precious stones they basically had a fortune in their hair and there was some pride obviously in that and ego in that so we learn here it's not always about what we're showing off and not wearing too much sometimes it's about drawing attention to ourselves by having too much on and being showy the goal should be not to draw attention to our external appearance or our person but to draw people's attention to our heart and ultimately to draw people's attention to god that should be my my goal in my appearance is to glorify god and I want to also just say that he's not saying that you can't wear jewelry. You can't have everybody's going to have a hairstyle. <laughs> if he was forbidding those things completely, you wouldn't. He was also forbidding putting on apparel. Certainly, he's not doing that. 
But I think we understand that immodesty can be not wearing enough or wearing too much in a certain sense. She's to be a keeper at home. And we're again going to get into something somewhat controversial. I'm not going to share my opinions or preferences or our own decision at home on this. Each family, I believe, has to make a judgment call concerning this. What's best? I think, you know, we can think about the ideal scenarios. We don't always have ideals. Ideal scenarios. We have to make the best situation we can. But it says she's a keeper at home. That means she works at home. She's busy at home. And sadly, very often today, women don't feel any joy in that, don't feel any purpose in that, aren't content with that. Because the world says it's not important or that's degrading. When you look at the job description for a woman in the home, for a wife and a mother, and all the things that it entails, fashion, decor, education, transportation, literature, art, economics, pediatrics, law, management, cuisine, psychology, recreation, religion, etc., etc., etc. Anyone who can do that is a superhero and deserves respect. Attitude is the key. You are a domestic engineer. And you are creating an environment, an atmosphere where souls can grow to be faithful men and women of God. And there's not a more important job on the face of the earth. I'm constantly whining or jealous of Kelsey. I'll tell her, you got the most important job. I'm not saying mine's not important. I've got my role. Man, her, her job is so important. And I hope so rewarding on a daily basis. Sure, some activities are boring and monotonous. Anybody that works has boring and monotonous. I work for a government contractor, right? Boring and monotonous doesn't mean it's not important. First Timothy 5, as Paul talks about taking care of widows, and he says, though, the younger widows, I want them to marry, bear children, and manage their house. Again, wife first, marriage first, then come the children. He said, manage the house. Take care of the house. Proverbs 31, we see all the things she's doing in her home. She's hardworking. I would encourage young men, don't marry a lazy woman. She's hardworking. She's industrious. She rises early. She goes to bed late. She has good time management. She perceiveth. She has intuition. She has insight. But can she work outside of the home? That's the controversial question. And it appears that, yes, she can. Proverbs 31, woman, she buys a field, plants a vineyard, makes clothes, She's providing somewhat financially. Lydia was a seller of purple. Quill and Priscilla had a very neat arrangement where they worked in the kingdom and in making tents together. So, yes, yeah, she can. But the key is never at the expense of her ultimate job and her primary duties. Each has to decide how much she can be out there with, without being exhausted or overwhelmed to the point that she's her duties at home are unattended and neglected. I want to tell you, if you let that happen, you will live and die with regret because you neglected the most important job a person can ever be given. We can't delegate this task to somebody else as stewards of this blessing from God. Proverbs 31, she was working and she was doing, she was juggling a lot, but never at the expense. It was always about the home. She didn't let somebody else raise her children. She was good. Proverbs 31, she will do him good and not evil all the days of her wife, speaking of her husband. She stretched out her hand to the poor. Yea, she reacheth forth her hands to the needy. We talk about on her tongue is the law of kindness. So it starts internally, and that motherly instinct, that motherly love, extends out from her husband and her children, out into the church, out into the world. The blessings of the kindness, the mightest touch of women, and the compassion of women. She's good. 
And finally, she's obedient to her husband. 1 Corinthians 11, the structure God gave us. The head of the wife is the husband. Colossians 3, wives, submit yourself unto your husband. And I want to emphasize as is fit in the Lord. We're going to see that later in Ephesians chapter 5. If you're asked to submit or subject yourself to something that's not fit in the Lord, you don't have to do it. And all of this is about ultimately our relationship with God. That's why we do what we do. 1 Peter 3, going back to this passage, wives be in subjection to your own husbands. Talks about this meek and quiet spirit. It requires humility to do that. And that's the problem. We've defined submission incorrectly in our culture today. We look at that as a bad thing. Jesus submitted and he taught us submission. I mean, he was inferior. We're to submit to our elders. Doesn't mean that we're inferior. We're to submit to our government authorities. We're certainly not inferior. It takes humility to do that. Jesus said, in fact, if you want to be great, be a servant. If you want to be first, you've got to make yourself last. Humbling yourself and putting others before yourself, that's not inferiority, that's superiority. It's greatness. These holy women who trusted in God adorned themselves being in subjection to their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well. You want to be a daughter of Sarah? That's what it takes. I was working on this sermon the other day, and I pointed this passage out to Kelsey, kind of being cute. And she's, I said, you know, I basically observed if we had, we need just need more Sarahs. And I was kind of waiting for her to dish it back to me. Her restraint probably revealed she's more of a Sarah than I am of an Abraham, because she could have rightly said, we might would have more Sarahs if we would have more Abrahams. If we had men that honored their wife, as he says, that means to make her feel special, make her feel important. That word means weighty, substantial, not a fine mist, which is dishonor. That you honor your wife, that you honor that relationship. Ephesians 5 says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. There's the model. Wives, be in subjection to your husband. children and the way that you treat their father. You know, we see examples in society where that's not the case, and the home is dysfunctional, and roles are reversed, and lines are blurred, and we get a lost paradise. That's the result. The home should be. And we see men that are passive and aren't leaders, and the deadbeat dad, and all those things we can talk about on Father's Day. <laughs> had a guy at work the other day said, I don't get, when I was telling him I was going to talk about it, I said, I don't get why on Mother's Day we talk about how great the mothers are, and how awesome the wives are, and on Father's Day, we talk about the deadbeat dad. <laughs> but you know, we see these men that aren't the husband and father that they should be. Should be, but so that is the wife's not letting them. Not stepping up and leading, the wife's not letting them. We see that in the world. That's not surprising. We see that on TV, but sadly, we see it sometimes in the church. I don't think we have any women like that here, do we? Surely not. These liberation feminist movements don't bless the home, they don't bless the husband, they don't bless the children, they don't even bless the woman. Blur the lines, dysfunction sets in, but whenever you encourage your husband to be the man that he was designed and created to be, and take on those pressures that he was designed for, you can take on the pressures you were designed for and be free, be liberated to do your job as God intended it. I said earlier, 
want to have a child, you want to raise a child, you don't need to have a child. You're not going to love a child. Tell you, if you don't want this type of home, you don't need to start one. It's too important. There's too much writing on God and women. As he finishes that the word of God be not blasphemed or evil spoken of. There's too much writing on this for you to mess this up. Spiritually healthy homes show others that God's plan, that God's ways, that God's will really works. That's the result. That's the importance. The welfare of the family, the welfare of the church, the welfare of the children, the welfare of a society and evangelism is depending upon God and women as they display a beauty that is captivating and compelling. And may I just say, worthy of praise. As we close, I want to share something that was written in praise of such women and mothers that I came across. Somebody said that a child is carried in its mother's womb for nine months. Somebody does not know that a child is carrying his mother's heart forever. Somebody says that it takes about six weeks to get back to normal after you've had a baby. Somebody doesn't know that once you're a mother, normal is history. Somebody said you learn how to be a mother by instinct. Somebody never took a three-year-old shopping. <laughs> Somebody said being a mother is boring. Somebody never got in a car driven by a teenager. Somebody said you don't need an education to be a mother. Somebody never helped a fourth grader with math. Somebody said you can't love the fifth child as much as the first. Somebody doesn't have five children. Somebody said a mother can find all the answers in these books. Somebody never had a child stuff beans up their nose. Somebody said the hardest part of being a mother is labor and delivery. Somebody never watched her baby get on the bus for the first day of kindergarten. Somebody said your mother knows you love her, so you don't need to tell her. Somebody isn't a mother. And so we say, and we close, we tell her in Proverbs 31, her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done virtuously, but thou excellest them all. Favor is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. This is the day that we often designate to show love and appreciation for women and mothers. I say we need to do that every day. We give gifts. Story about a four-year-old and a six-year-old. They bought it. They wanted to get flowers for their mother on Mother's Day. And they bought it with their own money. And they were so proud as they presented this plant to their mother. And it had a ribbon on it that said, rest in peace. And they presented it and said, we knew this was perfect for you because you're all asking, you're always asking for a little peace so you can rest. <laughs> and I want to say this morning, if you want your mother to have peace and rest, the best gift you could give her is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You want to honor someone, do something honorable. Be an honorable person, that's the best way you can do it. Cards and flowers are nice. Always get the card I've learned. Don't get her something that plugs in or that's practical. Be, be careful with sizes. You guess too low. That's, you're in trouble. You guess too high. You're really in trouble. Right? Be careful with the gifts. Gifts are nice. But the get, best gift of all you can give her is to have a relationship with your Father in Heaven. Faith, hope, and love that glorifies God. That's the best thing you can do. We're reading Proverbs 31. She smiles at the future. I think that phrase is really interesting. She smiles at the future. Why? Because we read she's prepared. And she's prepared her family. Everybody's prepared. And so she smiles at the future. She's not scared. She's not worried because she's prepared. Are you prepared for the future? Your family prepared for the future? Are you right with God? Do you have a relationship with God that trumps everything else? 
That commitment to God. If you want to be a godly woman this morning, if you want to be a godly man this morning, that starts with making a commitment to God that eclipses every other commitment. That's what makes all the other commitments work and stick and anchors you. And you do that by believing and repenting and being baptized, washing the blood, resurrecting in this life. The only way that you can really be godly or holy or righteous is through His righteousness. Period. And that's where it starts. It's a good place to start. It's the only place to start. Maybe if you need help renewing that commitment and the characteristics and qualities you've talked about, having the humility and all those things that allows you to recommit to the man or the woman that God has created and designed and intended for you to be in the home and in the kingdom and in the world. If you need to respond to that invitation, the Father invites you to come. Please have a seat on the front as we stand and sing together.